0: Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic, I'm Maya Owens, Senior Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization at the IISS in London. It's been just over six months since Russia commenced its war against Ukraine, and since then the world has witnessed unprecedented sanctions against Russia, military and humanitarian support for Ukraine, all against a backdrop of ongoing military campaigns and loss of civilian life. In today's episode of Sound Strategic, I'm joined by four WIWS experts who cover the political, military, and economic developments around the war in Ukraine to discuss their views of the past half year and what's next in terms of military operations, political strategies, and economic sanctions. I'm joined by Dr. Maria Shagina, Diamond Brown Research Fellow for Economic Sanctions, Standards and Strategy, Dr. Nigel Gold Davis, Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia and Editor of the Strategic Survey, Franz Stefan Gadi, Senior Fellow for Cyberspace and Future Conflict, and Henry Boyd, Research Fellow for Defense and Military Analysis. Maria, Nigel, Franz, and Henry, thanks for joining me on today's show. Franz, the last time we spoke on Sound Strategic, you cautioned that Ukraine's ability to withstand and respond to Russia's attacks was positive, but that the conflict may be a long and drawn-out one. Where are we in the conflict today, militarily speaking, and what strategies are we seeing play out?
1: Thank you, Maya. These are really two excellent questions. First of all, I think we are in the middle of what some would characterize as an operational pause in Ukraine at the moment. We can broadly divide the conflict thus far into three Phases. The first phase was really the initial invasion up until middle to end of March, which ended with the defeat of Russian forces around Kiev and the Russian withdrawal from the Kiev region and repositioning Russian forces more to the east, to the Donbas region, where they were regrouping and launching limited offensive against Ukrainian positions there this sort of war of attrition that has been going on ever since has somewhat slowed down in recent weeks so i think the second phase of the conflict started in mid-april and lasted maybe perhaps until mid-july end of july And we've seen really a lull, a decrease of fighting activities along all the front lines. At this moment, Russian and Ukrainian forces are again repositioning. There's been some Russian reinforcements moving into the south of Ukraine around Kherson region. There have been limited Russian advances over the last couple of months, but there hasn't really been a big, Breakthrough. The Russians have taken some towns, some significant towns in the Donbass region, but overall, Russian forces have not advanced as far as you might expect. At the moment, they are really still trying to break through an initial Ukrainian defensive line in the Donbass region that's really anchored on two towns. On the one hand, Pakhmut, on the other hand, uh, Siversk, and once they would break through there, they would really hit on the main Ukrainian defensive line in the Donbass. Uh, these are really anchored on two towns principally again uh, Kramatorsk and uh, Slovyansk and there has really been very little progress in recent weeks but I think what is really important to understand in a war of attrition it's, it's not so much about taking territory and it's more about trying to inflict as much damage to your opponent in terms of material and manpower as you can and definitely proportionately more damage on uh, the enemy than your own side is uh, receiving. So I think to answer your question when it comes to military strategies, I think the strategy now is a strategy of attrition for both sides, Ukraine and Russia. But for Russia, of course, and uh, Ukraine, there are also clear political implications when it comes to these strategies and that Russia will try everything to disrupt Western political support for Ukraine because as this war of attrition is going to go on in the next couple of months, what we are seeing more and more is that uh, Ukraine can only really sustain this fight with uh, substantial Western support that is mostly um, all types of munitions that Ukraine requires to continue this fight, and then also additional weapon systems and other equipment. So I think the Russian strategy is clear here. Try to break the Western will to support Ukraine, and then at the same time, on the ukrainian side it is to really help anything that can really sustain this western effort and having said that this is also probably the main reason why we are seeing now increased talk about a potential ukrainian counter-offensive i think this ukrainian counter-offensive that a lot of us have heard about in the news probably is primarily driven by political considerations that is ukraine needs to show some sort of a bigger military success in order to guarantee that Western arms flow are going to continue well into the next couple of months and into next year.
0: Can you explain a little bit about that Ukrainian counteroffensive in terms of what you're seeing and what the results have been so far?
1: First of all, we don't really know how this counteroffensive is really going to look like. There have been some reports a couple of weeks ago that said, that this Ukrainian counteroffensive is already beginning. I would say perhaps we are in the shaping phase of a potential Ukrainian counteroffensive. We've seen various attacks in rear areas of the Russian armed forces in Ukraine, particularly over the last couple of uh, days and weeks in Crimea. This could be interpreted as a sign that the Ukrainian armed forces are trying to shape potential future offensive operations, but we don't really know how such a counteroffensive would look like and where exactly it would happen. What we are pretty sure about is that it's going to happen somewhere in the South, but whether it's really going to be in the Kherson region or anywhere else, it's really, really um, unclear at this stage. What I do think is going to happen eventually is that political pressure on the Ukrainian armed forces uh, will will increase and we will see some sort of action in the coming weeks, but I can't really comment on the exact character of such an operation nor when it will happen.
0: Henry, moving on to you, France just talked about how little progress we've seen in, in the last few weeks by both sides, but primarily the Russian side. There have also been reports of recruitment in Russia to replenish its forces, even from prisons. What does this tell us about the state of Russia's armed forces six months into the conflict?
2: Hey, uh, Thank you. I think Dara Massakot described Russia as scraping the bottom of nine separate barrels for personnel recently i think probably sums up their position exact figures remain debatable for the state of russia's losses both in terms of personnel and equipment figures around 15 20 000 killed in action maybe somewhere along the lines of 75 000 to 80 000 total loss including wounded missing in action other have been circulated by western sources these are not implausible although i think um, treat them as a range of estimates as opposed to specific figures at this point in time if you look at the initial russian invasion force if you include donetsk and lahansk um, militia forces in addition to the the Russian armed forces proper, somewhere in the region of 140,000 personnel. Russia has lost over half of that in killed, wounded, and captured so far in this invasion. Now, obviously, there's been a considerable effort since day one for the Russians to try and make good these losses. The fact that, for political reasons, uh, Vladimir Putin continues to define this operation as a special military operation, as opposed to a war proper Really does hamper the Russian state and its ability to mobilize. It restricts the state's powers of compulsion and coercion in terms of the levers it can pull to generate resources. So, hence, I think why you see this combination of increasing inducements and incentivization for former military personnel to return to the colors, for volunteer battalions to be formed, but also a reliance on crudely turned mercenaries, uh, the Wagner group being the most prominent. It's Wagner where you see you see this kind of interest in recruiting out of military prisons, particularly for combat infantry and trained combat infantry, which is a critical Russian shortage at this point in time. A lot of the heavy initial equipment losses, uh, maybe a thousand main battle tanks, a thousand or more other armoured fighting vehicles, 500 plus artillery pieces perhaps, can be made good in the short term, pulling out less good but reasonable platforms out of storage russia has a fairly substantive store of old cold war era equipment which is not quite at the same standard their initial invasion force had available to them but can make good the losses to some extent uh, it's finding replacements for personnel i think that is going to be a, a critical limitation of their offensive operations and probably why you have seen i think it probably is fair to character looking at the shift of particularly the eastern military district russian forces out of Donetsk and Luhansk and into southern Ukraine in between Kurzon and Crimea suggests that for the moment Russia's offensive in Donetsk Oblast has probably culminated for now and that Russia is now shifting resources in expectation of a Ukrainian counter-offensive. In the short term, because Russia's long-term political objectives don't necessarily have changed, Russia's ability to conduct a continue- continuing offensive may have petered out.
0: And Henry, how does this compare to Ukrainian losses so far?
2: By comparison, well, we did know very, very little about Ukrainian losses. It is fair to assume they have also been relatively heavy. I believe the head of the Ukrainian armed forces gave a speech recently, maybe maybe in the last couple of days, where he talked about the memory of over nine of around nine thousand heroes who have lost their lives um, in the military and in the conflict so far, which seems a not unreasonable figure by comparison to a. Uh, Russian loss of 15 to 20 thousand killed. This might suggest somewhere in the region of a 30 to 40 thousand total loss amongst the armed forces, including mobilised reservists. Back in June, General Karpenko, who is head of the logistics command for the Ukrainian land forces, suggested that they may have lost somewhere around 400 tanks, another 1,300 uh, other armoured fighting vehicles, and 700 artillery pieces. Which is, in terms of a relative proportion, a but comparatively heavy loss alongside that of Ru- of Russia itself it again emphasizes point France made that the importance from, from the ukrainians for sustaining their combat power of access to Western resupply there's simply no no possibility the Ukrainian industry disrupted as it is by Russia's attacks on it during this invasion uh, will be able to make good these losses because Ukraine has been able to effectively mobilize from the start of the conflict it likely has greater access to personal resources in principle compared to the Russians that there is a a large and willing supply of personnel that the Ukrainians can put into to, as replacements into, into units, but getting these personnel trained and ready will continue to pose a challenge. And I think that's the key restriction on the Ukrainian personnel side. Is how quickly you can transform volunteers into effective combat forces. If the Ukrainians are thinking about an offensive, one of two views, if you, if you, are, you are thinking about launching a large-scale counter-offensive around Kurzon, how much of that force you can put into a position where it can, connect, can effectively conduct combined arms operations against dug-in Russian defenders. So we saw in the early stage of the conflict what happens when you can't conduct effective comb- combined arms operations in modern in modern warfare and the losses, loss level that's likely to affect. Where the balance lies between the political impetus of doing something quickly prior to an expected Russian annexation of some of the southern territories versus the military readiness, um, particularly in terms of personnel and equipment familiarity that would be necessary for that is a key upcoming question for the next couple of months.
0: Nigel, Vladimir Putin has said that Russia hasn't even begun to fight. So how is the conflict being perceived in Russia and how much conviction behind the cause do you think there is still going
3: forward? Conviction is fundamental in modern warfare, especially warfare conducted on a large scale. We had a recent lesson in that from the chaotic end to Western involvement in Afghanistan. On paper, a great mismatch of forces, but in practice, the very different levels of will and resolve and commitment of the two sides was decisive in determining the outcome of that long conflict. So it matters very much. And it matters both for the motivation and morale of forces in the field, and also for the degree of uh, political support on the home front uh, a war enjoys. In the case of Russia, of course, everyone is trying to understand what is happening with Uh, public support and whether that might be waning or under what circumstances support for this might ebb. It's hard to get reliable opinion polls. I've certainly been struck by the trickles of evidence from some of the polls that can still be conducted in Russia of a quiet and grey anxiety, I would say. When people are asked whether they want the war to continue now, a bare majority, only just 52%, in the latest poll said they wanted the war to go on. That's a far more concrete and specific question than an abstract, do you support the war? Do you actually want to continue? And despite the, the, uh, the torrent of state propaganda constantly being churned out on all, all channels, there is definite sign of, of that waning. A large majority of people say they wouldn't actually want to fight in it, which is an uh, even more sort of pointed and significant question, it seems to me. But if we're looking at the the alchemy of opinion in Russia and uh, what aspects of it might really matter, I would say it's elite opinion rather than mass opinion, which we should really be looking at. And I do believe that this fateful war is the first major action that Putin has ever undertaken that's been unpopular and certainly created a great deal of anxiety among a large number of people who matter. And it created that anxiety from the start. So uh, watch elite opinion, I would say. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean we should go down the speculative rabbit holes of exploring potential coup scenarios or something like that. I will just say that all the signs are to me that if one way or another, for whatever reason, Putin were to leave the scene, I suspect this war would probably end fairly soon, much as the Korean War did In 1953, soon after Stalin's death, that that war having gone on for three years at that point. The levels of escalating repression that uh, the Russian state is inflicting on its own people does not suggest to me a confident regime at all, a regime that knows it can rely on popular support. On the contrary, and Russia has now become as repressive a country as the Soviet Union was in the mid-1980s. I suppose the final point is that, uh, of course, we are discussing these issues just a a couple of days after the the death of uh, Daria Dugana, the daughter of the self-described sort of conspirologist, conspiracy theorist, exotic, mystical, uh, geopolitical extremist, uh, Alexander Dugin. All the signs are to me at this point that this is something that has been Fabricated, concocted by some part of the Russian state, possibly as a pretext to try to rouse public opinion even more uh, strongly against Ukraine. And you do that sort of thing if you're, again, if you're worried about potentially uh, declining support. By contrast, on the Ukrainian side, I think everyone has been struck by the resolve from President Zelensky down and from the first days onwards of popular will to uh, resist this invasion.
0: Maria, what does this conviction and resolve among Ukrainians look like six months on from the start of the war?
4: For Ukraine, it's indeed no longer in conflict. That language could have been used against the annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbas, but today it's an existential war against the country And Russia's invasion of Ukraine aims to deny its very right to exist as a sovereign state its right to exercise any agency and destruct its culture and identity. And as Henry pointed out, we haven't seen any changes vis-a-vis political objectives when it comes from Moscow, despite the relatively poor military performance on the battlefield. As any existential threat that really has the ability to unite the country like nothing else. So we're seeing... Unprecedented unity within Ukraine, all cultural differences brushed off, uh, language preferences don't really matter. And for a change, political squabbles have been put aside. So under this umbrella, as Nigel described, that Zelensky has gathered their... There is um, unity that Ukraine hasn't seen uh, for a while. And that puts in very strong contrast with Russia. Russia, which struggles to announce large-scale mobilization. It faces a serious manpower problem. Ukraine is fighting this war on every level. From women joining the army in large numbers, volunteers and diaspora helping to crowdfund for equipment, to civilians protesting under the occupation. And this contrast shows you how atomized Russian society is and how strong horizontal ties uh, within Ukraine have been built over the past months in particular. So the morale, the conviction plays a huge role here because it's not always about the numbers. With more modern equipment and committed soldiers, one can arguably achieve more against an army of demotivated soldiers. And that strong conviction was also recently reflected in the Ukrainian poll, which shows that Ukrainians see themselves as the winning party of this war. And the the poll was conducted in July this year by Kiev Institute of Sociology, showing that only 10% of Ukrainians agree to cede territories to Russia, and 84% find that any territorial concessions are unacceptable. It might be a double-edged sword here. It's very good, obviously, for the war effort because you have a very strong conviction that Ukraine should win. But also, it might be very hard for Zelensky to sell any negotiated settlement when the time is right and if it favors Ukraine. But that might complicate signing any agreement when some territory must be ceded to the Russians
0: it's really fascinating to see the differences in the polling results that you've both mentioned maria i was wondering whether we could talk a little bit about sanctions moving on how have expert controls and sanctions perhaps started to impact what we see happening in russia has that led to some of this dissatisfaction that we see in russia that nigel spoke about
4: the unprecedented sanctions that the West has imposed against Russia show to us how quickly one can unplug the world's 11th largest economy with a stroke of a pen, in particular if it's an American pen, but it has also showed the limitations of sanctions. First of all, what they can achieve in the short term and what they can achieve against the military aggression. The current slogan of the sanctions is start high and remain high. And we did start high. The main shock came from freezing central bank assets, blocking uh, systemic banks, de-swifting them, which was also amplified by an exodus of Western companies. More than 1,000 companies uh, left Russia. That has really knocked down the foundation of Russia's fortress strategy that Moscow was so proud of and was boasting about that. It was immune to sanctions. The second part of the slogan, remaining high, delivering on that second part becomes harder because the cost for tightening sanctions gets costlier. So the macroeconomic picture is less devastating as it was predicted. The recent IMF forecast shows that Russia's GDP will contract by 6% instead of the original 10%. We're seeing the stabilisation of the financial system in Russia, the inflation rate, unemployment is much lower than it was predicted of these massive consequences as it was announced from the US.
0: But how is Russia able to paint such a relatively stable macroeconomic picture? And is that really what we should be focusing on?
4: First of all, skillful response from the Russian officials. They did have a playbook from 2014, how to react to this type of measures, not all of them, but the the playbook was there, how to curb any capital outflows, how to tame inflation and how to hide any unemployment rates that might pop out. The second aspect here is the design of sanctions, because we have to say that there has been a major flaw in the design of sanctions because energy sector hasn't been targeted. Russia's economy lending was softened by record high energy prices, and by the end of the year, Russia will accumulate around $300 billion from the export of fossil fuels. And that roughly equates to the amount of uh, central bank's assets that were frozen. Doesn't necessarily mean that sanctions are not working. Uh, macroeconomic picture is something that Russia wants you to focus on to show that economy is standing, it hasn't collapsed. But if you look deeper at the micro level, there are significant transformations here that uh, will unfold uh, in the coming months. We need to look at the fallen imports. Uh, Some of them fell by 70 to 40%, even from China, that which didn't join sanctions. Also production in particular in the car and aviation industry. Despite the fact that the macroeconomic picture of sanctions might not look as devastating, and this is where the Russian government wants you to look at and to focus on.
0: So I suppose my next question is, what does all of this mean for Russia's economic policy and strategy moving forward?
4: Russia will undergo structural transformation and reverse industrialization. Those are the two key phrases I think the Central Bank of Russia put it in its report, and I think it's worth capturing. It very captures what the the Russian economy will uh, go through. It comes down to finding this new model for modernization to avoid any degradation, which will be crucial. But ultimately, we are looking at Russia, which will be much more isolated and inward-looking country. It will be decoupled on multiple levels, not just commercial, financial, but also technological and in terms of energy flows when the oil embargo will kick in and now we have the, the coal ban as well. The country's uh, economy won't collapse, and that wasn't the objective of sanctions. Russia will face a future of poor quality goods with lower safety standards, fewer foreign direct investments, and declining real incomes.
0: We've been speaking about the impact of the war on the Russian economy as a whole. But how have sanctions and export controls affected the Russian military-industrial complex?
4: When it comes to assessing the impact of sanctions and export controls on Russia's ability to produce equipment to replenish the old ones, it's getting harder to, to assess what is really going on here. Firstly, because the defense sector is, by default, much murkier territory to get information about, and we also have too many unknowns here. The first one is the size of stock of Russian equipment. We don't know how well prepared the Russian army was, given that the so-called special military operation was announced only to a few, very limited number of people people, but also we don't really know about Russia's ability to produce equipment or report for the required system via parallel imports or illicit procurement networks. So we can make high-level estimates here, analyzing Russia's import substitution also in the defense sector. I remain personally skeptical that Russia will be able to import substitute critical components. Um, so this ability remains very low in particularly when it comes to advanced technologies such as chips and semiconductors. So procuring them via third countries or via illicit uh, networks is almost a certain trajectory. In this case, Russian military is also likely to undergo through reverse industrialization, where it will rely more on old Soviet technology, for example, chips that are 30-20 years old, but it will also have impact on Russia's actions on the battlefield. But ultimately, while the economic pie of the Russian economy will be smaller, I think it's fair to say that military spending will trump all other expenses, such as education, healthcare. So we won't see any changes in that sense in the short term, but we'll see the confluence of two types of attrition, the economic one and also the military one.
0: That's fascinating. Thank you for that really comprehensive answer, Maria. Nigel, if I could maybe broaden this out a little bit and ask you about how the conflict has impacted Ukraine's neighbors in the last six months. How have you seen Russia's invasion of Ukraine perceived
3: in Eastern Europe? Central and Eastern Europe is, of course, on the front line of this conflict. They are the countries bordering Ukraine who face the consequences of the war most immediately and that's even before any prospects of escalation which is a a real and live concern now and has been for some time as things stand we've seen of course millions of refugees being taken in by those neighboring states two million in poland alone and remarkably there are not really refugee camps in poland they're all being taken into people's homes There is that that constant concern that the the war could uh, spread. I think these countries see this war as vindication of their own earlier decisions to seek membership of NATO. Uh, And of course, what we're seeing now is the process of ratification of of further NATO enlargement to include uh, Sweden and Finland too. Uh, Right now, I think there are concerns In particular, in the wake of the death of uh, Daria Dugana, whom I I mentioned earlier, Estonia could be subjected to some potential escalation. The story, which uh, frankly seems in every detail to have been concocted by the FSB, the Russian uh, Internal Security Service, says that the, the perpetrator of this attack fled to Estonia and they're already demanding extradition and making very threatening growls in Estonia's direction. This in turn follows a series of very serious but unsuccessful cyber attacks on Estonia over the past week. So yes, always heightened attention and concern that uh, this war could have direct and kinetic consequences, as well as the very significant indirect economic ones that we've seen so far.
0: And how would you describe Turkey's diplomatic role in the wider region at the moment?
3: Turkey's role in all of this and its relationship with Russia is extraordinarily complex and multi stranded. Turkey, of course, is a long standing member of NATO. Therefore, its approval will be needed if that uh, accession bid by Sweden and Finland is to be successful. It needs to be ratified by all NATO member states, including Turkey. And yet Turkey is also making life easier for Russia as Russia tries to evade sanctions and mitigate the sanctions effects that Maria was referring to earlier. Both imports from and exports to Russia from Turkey have nearly doubled over the past year. And uh, more concerning even than that is, Uh, growing evidence that Turkey is uh, not just uh, increasing its trade involvement with Russia, but is helping to facilitate the underlying sanctions evading systems that Russia is setting up. Turkey is joining the the Russian payment system, Mir, which is an alternative to SWIFT from which it's largely been cut off. Turkey now is beginning to transact some of its trade in rubles. So there are real, real concerns there. I want mean, to go even further as well. Look at look at Turkey's complex aspiration to serve some brokering role, to be the the person in the middle that might help facilitate an eventual uh, agreement to end the war. The earlier talks several months ago were held in Istanbul, and it was Turkey that, in effect, brokered the, the recent agreement to allow at least some grain shipments out of Edessa onto. Uh, world markets, although in practice, there's been I think, less to that so far than meets the eye. Erdogan meets Putin, and in twice in recent weeks, he also met President Zelensky uh, in the past week. So put all this together, and I think we see Turkey playing a really unique role here, seeking options, trying to avoid binary choices, trying to present itself as diplomatically indispensable to an ultimate resolution of this. And part of the background uh, to all this is Erdoğan's own bid for domestic re-election in June 2023. His economy is in, in serious trouble. I think that essential domestic backdrop helps explain at least part of what Turkey is doing.
0: Thanks, Nigel. Henry, at a conference in Copenhagen on the 11th of August, 26 Western governments pledged a total of 1.5 billion euros of additional help to Ukraine. And some analysts have commented that military aid to Ukraine seems to be smaller at the moment than it was at the start of the war. Have you seen a reduction in the amount of military aid to Ukraine over the last few months? And if so, what could be contributing to this?
2: Franz mentioned earlier West support, military and financial, is a key point of dependence for the Ukrainian war effort and one that is correctly seen as a potential vulnerability. I think Lawrence Friedman identified it as what he believes Russia has seen as the key weakness in, in Ukraine's ability to sustain the fight against Russia. That being said, I think we, I mean, there's a very real danger of reading too much into quote unquote trends based on incomplete short term data, that not every piece of military support is European or other states to Ukraine is necessarily flagged up. Some countries are much keener on publicizing their activities than others, and so the US has a fairly sort of clear and recordable list of public goods supplied. Some countries have not. There is at least one country within Europe supplying Ukraine with 122, 152 millimeter artillery ammunition, not publicized widely believed to be Romania but it not officially did. no no be no, no, no official declaration that this is this is being undertaken by the Romanian government to my knowledge so i think you can quickly run into trouble of just trying to analyze what we do know and assuming that is 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 near complete the overall level of support for ukraine has not been a smooth trend line since the beginning of the invasion it has spiked in various pieces it has dropped off for various other, and i think on balance This is probably more for practical reasons than necessarily a kind of a fluctuation of political will or a lack thereof. And I think it's probably at the moment important to think about Western support not as much in terms of changing quantity, but changing nature. During the initial phase of the conflict, the emphasis was on a quick turnaround of basically manned portable systems, in part because these were very quick and easy to ship into Ukraine, both immediately in advance of the invasion and afterwards, but also this reflected thinking in Western military establishments before the Russian invasion proper, that Russia would probably win a conventional fight relatively quickly, and that the emphasis should be on supporting a Ukrainian guerrilla resistance movement against the Russians that would be much more successful. Turns out Russia <laughs> Russia has indeed struggled against Ukrainian guerrilla tactics, but has also struggled to struggle on like, conventional warfare. So very quickly, well, I say relatively quickly after the, after the invasion, it became clear that Russia was not going to be able to achieve conventional success within the terms that it set out for itself, that there was then a, a rushed emphasis on supplying Ukraine with what, second-hand Soviet-era compatible equipment to sustain its existing stocks. Both in terms of ammunition and in terms of platforms. So, a, a hard look at Eastern European states who still had modernized or unmodernized Cold War equipment in their stockpiles. The emphasis was yes, then on quickly supplying this to sustain Ukraine's conventional war, war fighting capacity. Now, we've seen a third phase of conflict where the emphasis has now become on replacing soviet-era artillery systems in ukraine's arsenal with nato standards the us has been the lead actor in this but you've seen other european states also contributing the french germans the brits funding other transfers of other stocks as the russians re-emphasize their kind of neck down to their objectives in south south southeastern ukraine and emphasized heavier use of artillery to essentially win, win an attritional grinding urban battle with the ukrainians in that in southern ukraine this change in nature of what needs to be supplied has had, a, I think, a stronger impact on the quantity and quality of support than necessarily changing political will has so far. That being said, it is, I think, reasonable to continue to look at the potential vulnerability of Ukraine in terms of its long-term reliance on Western support. It's important to remember that Ukraine it's not just supply of platforms and ammunition but also training support for those for those platforms and for for military training in general which is more difficult to conduct inside Ukraine as Russia continues to strike targets across the country. But also, um, just purely non-military financial aid sustain Ukraine, the Ukrainian government's ability to function. The war has had a, uh, unsurprisingly had a significant impact on the Ukrainian economy. On top of that, an incredibly costly undertaking to continue. All of these factors, I think, contribute to the, the central importance of Western supply. If you're sitting in Moscow and you were counting on a collapse in Western support over the summer, I don't think you're seeing very much to give you particular solace about that. Yes, some countries have gapped, some have not followed up previous donations with, with a consistent further supply of weapons, um, but other countries have taken up some of these patterns, and I think the role of the U.S. in particular as an outsized supplier of military support, particularly the more sophisticated, um, more niche military capabilities um around reconnaissance, strike, artillery support, and large-scale supply of NATO standard ammunition has, I think, had a fairly consistent drumbeat month after month since the start of the invasion.
0: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Sound Strategic. I'm Aya Nowens. And today I'm speaking with my colleagues Maria Shagina, Nigel Gold davis Franz Stefan Gadi, and Henry Boyd about their analysis of the political, military, and economic developments in the war in Ukraine over the past six months as well as what they'll be looking for moving forward. Maria, as we move closer to winter in Europe, how do you view the next few months in terms of leveraging economic and energy relations to keep pressure on Russia? You've talked a little bit about Russia's ability to withstand sanctions, but what about on the flip side of things?
4: The room for tightening sanctions for expanding the measures is getting narrow it will be hard to expand sanctions in areas which matter and which can hurt the Russian economy as those measures will hurt the Europeans as well. And this is due to the lack of domestic resilience and particularly in the energy sector where diversification didn't happen. So tightening sanctions in qualitative terms where it would matter, this is the gas sector, but that discussion doesn't take place. Another good indication of how slowly and how reluctant talks proceed is that we haven't seen any progress on introducing a price cap on the Russian oil. With this winter, the, the economic problems will mount and we already see in inflation, but also energy prices. Russia will seek to increase the costs for the Europeans, and its main weapons is reducing energy flows. We're already seeing that the gas flows via Nord Stream 1, one of the major pipelines now that connects Germany and Russia, has been reduced to 20%. Gazprom has also announced that it will stop uh, gas flows for three days against this moment of uncertainty, whether they will bring it up to the 20% um, of uh, supplies. So from Moscow's perspective, this is this narrow window of opportunity where you can saw discord, uh, discord increase costs for the Europeans, and thus lower military and economic assistance to Ukraine. The emphasis now is on enforcement, as unsexy as it might sound, is enforcement of the existing sanctions. If the current implementations get squandered, the West really runs out of any tools it can constrain Russia where it matters. As there is no agreement on what the endgame with Russia should be, the rising cost will likely prompt these talks about finding a compromise, patching things over, instead of fundamentally solving the issue.
0: Thanks. And friends, moving on quickly to what you'll be watching for in the next six months. Despite record-high temperatures in the UK and a hot summer across Europe over the last few weeks, how's the changing weather going to impact military strategies as we approach winter on the continent?
1: that's a good question and i think it's one factor of many other factors and by far it's not the most decisive factor i'm fairly skeptical of whether having a decisive impact on future military operations in ukraine of course you have mud season approaching in the fall this fall you have usually uh, two mud seasons every year one in the spring and one in the fall that's the time of the year where um, A lot of the unpaved roads are essentially impassable but what we've seen over the last couple of weeks and months is that the russian armed forces at least have been primarily staying on paved roads to begin with and this has not so much to do with the weather and more to do with uh, some structural deficiencies in the force structure of the russian armed forces that is that they simply lack infantry and Therefore, they can't really go off-road because you need a protective screen, essentially, of infantry if you go off-road with your armored vehicles here. I don't really foresee substantial, a substantial impact by the weather on military operations. Um, of course, uh, you know any sort of uh, major offensive in the spring or in the fall during mud season will be very tricky. Russia has seen that also happening uh, on their drive to Kiev. Uh, last uh, February and March, uh, because they got literally stuck in the mud, and on one or two occasions there, and were really it was really difficult to dislodge Ukrainian forces from their defensive positions. But as I said, this was not only the result of bad weather or weather not conducive to uh, those types of operations, but had much more to do with structural issues within within the Russian army. I think what I'm uh, much more uh, paying attention to in the coming months will be uh, a how Russia is going to solve its manpower problem and um, how well uh, Western arms supplies are continuing to uh, flow into Ukraine and to what degree this can really be harmonized because I do think we'll see Ukraine facing a couple of critical capability gaps in the next couple of weeks and months I'm talking about mid-range air defense systems here I'm talking about. multiple rocket launchers, heavy artillery, and so forth. And, and I think um, you need these kinds of capabilities and um, the accompanying uh, ammunition coming with it in order to really sustain this fight. And I'm, I'm very, very concerned when it comes to the lack of, of certain capabilities or Ukraine slowly depleting its stock of um, mid-range air defense missiles. Also, the rate which um, these multiple rocket launches are, g- are getting put out of action is also deeply concerning. So I think that's much more what I'll be watching in the weeks and months ahead of this horrible conflict.
0: Thanks, friends. Let me throw that question out to the group. What you'll be looking for in terms of key factors or potential developments over the coming six months in 60 seconds or less. Henry, go first.
2: The thing I want to look out for is what happens if Russia's current plan is to to stabilise its current gains, annex that territory, and then to play for time, what happens if it can't do that? What's its plan then? It's already had to go to plan C or D down the list. Does it have a plan E? And from the Ukrainians, what happens if they are unsuccessful at retaking some of that territory? What happens if the Russians do manage to stabilise those lines? How does Ukraine sustain impetus from Western states to Continue active conflict to regain that territory and avoid pr- a build up of pressure to settle for the status
0: quo. Maria, what do you'll be looking for?
4: I'll be looking for two issues here. First of all, whether the financial assistance to Ukraine remains on the same level of commitment. Ensuring that Ukraine is economically resilient, not just militarily, is key here. If Ukraine's economy collapses, it will make it really hard to fight the war, and it will arguably make a very negative impact on the morale of the army. In July, there was, for example, no new commitments in terms of weapons and financial So it might be a dangerous precedent here, indicating that politicians and media are getting saturated by attention to Ukraine and Ukraine's requests. The other aspect here to watch is how robust the enforcement of sanctions and export controls will be. As I mentioned, Russia will almost certainly try to exploit any loopholes in the sanctions regime and procure critical uh, elements that it can't produce domestically via non-aligned countries. So that would be the area to watch how robust and waterproof those regimes will be and how effective the US and allies will be in. Closing the loopholes, cracking down on evasion, will ultimately predetermine the effectiveness of those measures.
0: Thanks, Mary. And Last but not least, Nigel.
3: I will be looking to Russian escalation options. I think it's dawning on Russia now that time does not necessarily work in their favour, uh, and part of their their sort of ideology, and this is this is reinforced by framing it in these World War Two terms, is that. Uh, Uh, However long and tough a war and however badly it goes initially, Russia will always prevail. I think there are doubts creeping in about that. They'll be looking for escalation. That could mean um, much more severe use of uh, air power. It could mean doing something very dangerous with the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, where Russia is frankly already playing with fire. That has potentially incalculable security implications for the entire continent, but also more specifically for Ukraine, of course, as well as uh, that plant being responsible for around a fifth of Ukraine's electricity needs. The really big issue that faces Putin now is whether to order a general mobilization. As I think Henry said earlier, Russia is scraping all sorts of personnel barrels, including the prisons, to try to find people that they can cajole, pay uh, you know, bribe or arm twist into fighting. They're not yet compelling the general population to fight. But if they come to the conclusion that they just lack the manpower to continue this war in the way that they would like, they will be faced with that decision. And that will cross a fateful Rubicon because then more than ever, ordinary Russians will have to think very carefully about whether they really support this war or not if they are being asked, being told, in fact, that they will need to fight and die for it. That's the thing that could crack public opinion, and I think the Kremlin knows it.
0: Thanks, Henry, France, Maria, and Nigel for joining me today. Looking forward to keeping up with your latest research in these respective areas. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IWS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the IWS website. Thank you and see you next time.